0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. DW Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. Eighteen plus. Emergency to from to the city to Attention, all listeners on this frequency, stand by for an important announcement. Welcome to Medic to Medic Podcast, the weekly podcast for EMS providers, EMS leaders, EMS medical directors and others involved in, or those who have an interest in emergency medical services. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your host, Steve Cohen.
1: Coming from the Keri EMS Studios is another episode of Medic to Medic Podcast. Hi, it's Steve Cohen. You can download past episodes at Stitcher, Speaker, Apple Podcasts, as well as my Facebook page and my website at com. Today, I'm joined by David Gibbett. David is an EMS paramedic who graduated from the UCLA Center for pre Care in June of 1989. He spent the most of his decade working as a paramedic and responding to 911 calls in Glendale, California. Then he made a totally different shift and moved into the legal field and became a lawyer. We'll let David talk about his career and how he got started in EMS, but first let's welcome David to Medic to Medic podcast.
2: Good morning, Steve. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that.
1: Well, it is my pleasure. Well, What got you interested in emergency medical services?
2: Well, I'll tell you, there's, when I was a kid, when I was young, there was only three things I ever wanted to do. I wanted to be a paramedic, I wanted to be a lawyer, and I wanted to be a pilot. And when I got out of high school and into, into college, I found an EMT course that had a, it was worth a lot of units, so it seemed like a good idea. And on my very first ride along, I fell in love, and 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 uh, and the die was cast. I, I was in it for uh, for the long haul, and uh, ultimately became a, a lawyer. But my wife won't let me be a won't let me be a pilot, so I, I have to stick with two out of three.
1: Well, that's that's not too bad. Why did you want to become a paramedic?
2: Uh, I, this is going to sound cheesy and corny and totally made up, but it's a hundred percent truth. Is I've always. Been attracted to the idea of helping people who can't help themselves, and that just was a natural fit. Started as a as a as a junior lifeguard when I was about I don't know fourteen or fifteen or so, and just built from there.
1: Well, tell us about the uh, the program you attended at UCLA.
2: Well, back when I attended, it at wasn't UCLA wasn't uh, UCLA yet. It was the Daniel Freeman Paramedic School in Inglewood, one of the one of the original paramedic schools in California. And it was a, 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 a very amazing experience to me uh, and very eye-opening. I remember as an EMT thinking, man, some of the paramedics I work with, you know, running county fire calls and whatnot, some of these paramedics are just real jerks. Like, how do they, where do they get the attitude from and where do they get the ego from? And about four hours into my first day of paramedic school, I, I just, I had an epiphany and said, oh, they're not jerks at all. This stuff is hard. And you know the, the remainder of the program was very very interesting to me and very difficult. You know, back uh, back in in the day that I did it, you, you were allowed to retake one quiz. Uh, Eighty was passing, seventy nine was failing, and we lost a good I don't know third of the class before it was over. It was unlike anything I'd ever done before, and that was just the, the didactic portion. You know, I did my my field internship at L.A. City Fire. In South Central in 1989, which was you know, <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. oh yeah, quite
2: quite quite the eye-opening experience back then. Um, and and, and I, I got to learn under two of the best preceptors anybody could have asked for. They were tough but very very fair, and I think they set my they they sort of set me up for success. And not only not only in my own program, but in for the rest of my
1: career. David, what can you tell us about that experience in 1989, uh, riding in, in, in L.A. in that environment?
2: Um, you know, I was, what was I, tw- barely 20 years old, 19, 20 years old. I was very eager and excited to do all the things I had learned to do and see all the things they said I would see. And when I, when I got there and saw it, I, 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 I think the best way to describe it was um, I was taken aback by what in real life, what one human would do to another. Uh, I remember one, one time in particular, this guy got uh, uh, shot in the gut with a shotgun, because another guy at the gas station wanted his rims, the rims to his car. And I couldn't, my brain couldn't, couldn't comprehend that kind of behavior, that, that kind of thought process. And, you know, we saw everything from, you know, everything everybody else sees. It wasn't it was special to me because it was my experience, but I don't think it was any different than than most any other paramedic intern experiences when they're seeing these things for the for the very first time. And uh, I, I think it's it's the same shared experience, which was, is what makes this industry so unique.
1: What valuable advice did your preceptors give you?
2: I think the the most important thing that I learned from them that I've taken with me not only in my paramedic career, but in everything I've done since, is that if you are going to endeavor to serve others, then you have to be of the mindset to actually serve others and not yourself. Keep in mind always that when somebody comes to you for help, whether they need it or not, whether it's legitimate or not, to them it's the most important thing. It's, it's, it's the biggest, most significant thing in their life at that time. And, and it's essential to maintain that point of view, maintain that perspective, to always keep in mind that this is their call, this is their situation, not yours, to judge. Um, and with that, the the, the second thing that, that they really set me away with that I've kept is to always do my very best to remain objective, um, to never let mood or... External factors or anything else cloud my judgment or my ability to see what's actually happening and that you know When I, when I go around the country and I lecture now on legal issues to paramedics all across the country I, That's one thing that I focus on very heavily is the call doesn't care what you think it cares what you can prove and you can Only do that by remaining objective And that's that's I think those are the two biggest lessons that they gave me
1: Do you have a couple of memorable calls you can tell us about
2: I, well, uh, for my internship, I do. I, I don't know if anybody wants to hear about them, but um, I think the the single most memorable call, the the one the one that really indoctrinated me into into real life as a paramedic was um, a one year old, a twelve month old infant, a baby who had been raped by mom's boyfriend. And um, the call came in, I forget how it came in. But in my evaluation, uh, in my assessment, you know, looking full head to toe, I noticed that the groin area was very red and irritated and there were pubic hairs on it. And that I, I, I carried that with me for a long, long, long time, trying to reconcile how one human being could treat another like that. That's probably the single most memorable call. And then, uh, of course, there was the the mother of the police chief who was in full arrest. And when I went to defibrilate, I hit the power button instead of the shock button. Yeah, I won't, I won't forget that one.
1: Let's go back to that first call. How did you cope with that?
2: I talked about it a lot. Uh, I talked about it with my friends. I talked about it with my mentors. I had, you know, I was I was working as an EMT at the time. For a, for a private ambulance company, and, you know, I would spend my, my non-school days there talking to the paramedics, and, and anybody who would listen, um, I, I would tell the story just so that I could continue to process it. Uh, I um, journaled about it, I wrote about it, um, and I, I just thought a lot about it. I, I gave it a lot of time and attention, uh, I, I was told somewhere along the way, I don't remember where or by whom, but I was told that, that the worst thing any provider could do is to suppress the feelings, to suppress um, the emotions. You know, one of the things that um, Kelly McKee was, was one of my preceptors, and he always told me that, um, that you know, if you let the job get to you, it will, and the best way to cope is to let it out. The, the whole notion of of being strong and just tucking it away it was, it was false it was a myth it's how people get hurt so i talked about it a lot now 30 some odd years later i still think about it sometimes
1: uh, so you were kind of a, a leader in that component uh, by going out and, <laughs> and talking about it where most people didn't
2: maybe i didn't it certainly wasn't my intention i just needed to get it out i'm not I, i'm a I'm a hard on your sleeve kind of guy. Just ask my wife; she'll tell you. Well, don't ask her. Let's not, let's not bring her into
1: this. Okay, <laughs> we won't ask her man. <laughs> All
2: right, good. Well, she was a paramedic too, and now she's a nurse, so she knows. She comes home and talks about it, and you know, I I know the best thing I could do for her is listen.
1: Absolutely. So you're a paramedic. What were your career goals?
2: Well, you know what's funny about that is I didn't I didn't have any. Um, when I was in my internship, uh, one of the one of the battalion chiefs came around and in interest cards because LA City was doing a mass hiring, and you know it gave me an interest card. And I thought, you know, I don't, I don't really think I'm going to do this for that long, so yeah, no, no thanks. And I and I didn't realize the, the hold that it had, had on me, so I didn't take it. And I uh, I went to work for a, uh, a private provider. And lo and behold, it was, you know, 10 years later that I realized, you know, I might have should have thought about taking that card. But obviously I'm glad I didn't because I'm not, uh, you know, uh, I get to do what I do now. But uh, it, it was career goals. I, I, I It's funny that you ask. I, I don't know that I had. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I know that while I was there, I had uh, little things that we did. Well, not little, but um, like, for example, with the help of some of you know, some of my coworkers. We established the very first bicycle-based paramedic unit in the county of Los Angeles in the history of, of LA County EMS, uh, and that was that was something quite cool. You know, I was with people that were trying new things and doing new things in the moment. But career goals, I I never thought it would last that long.
1: What'd you do after LA?
2: I took a job with uh, AMR Corporate. I was I was with uh, it was AMR at the time. Uh, in, in the city of Glendale, Glendale was an all DLS-only fire department uh, professional, which became MedTrans, became AMR, uh, had taken over the contract, you know, had, had had the contract for years and years and years and years. Um, the fire department, the city decided they wanted to take ALS in-house, and to me, that seemed like the perfect time to, to see what was next. At the same time, we were in union negotiations, and you know, they, were, they were pretty hard-fought. And when the union negotiations were over, the CFO of AMR in Southern California approached me and said, hey, I was watching you during the the negotiation, and and we need help on this level communicating with the employees. We're just not doing it right. Do do you want to help us out? And I said, of course I don't. I don't want to be part of that. Um, And then, of course, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse, and up I went. And that led to – me be, uh, doing consulting around the country, teaching other EMS agencies how to perform better, how to treat their people better, how to communicate with them, um, which led me to Baltimore, where I was the director of operations for the rural metro division there, where I met my wife. And after that, I had sort of done what there was to do. I had fallen into the various roles that I had done, came back to California and decided, you know what, it's time to, it's time to do the next thing on my list. And, uh, basically on a whim, went to law school. Next thing you know, law school came and went, I took the bar, passed out on the first try and oh boy, now I got Now I got to figure out how to be a lawyer. And that's, that's basically how the progression went.
1: Well, let's go back to your advice and your consulting and give us some tips about how we as leaders in the organizations that we serve better communicate with our employees and volunteers.
2: Okay, I'm happy to do that. It starts by telling them the truth. Don't treat employees like children. Don't treat them like they're stupid. Don't treat them like they don't understand. Level with them. Be honest with them. Be forthright with them. Ask them their opinion, their advice. Get their input. And then use it. Don't ignore it. So the one thing that I noticed from a lot of agencies that I served was that we would provide them with you know various ideas and tools and tips. And they would do surveys, and they would get the employees' opinions and feedback because they all wanted feedback. And then they would never use them. They would just go ahead and do what they were going to do anyway. And that was one of the more frustrating things that we ever had to deal with. So what I would say to leaders now is is recognize that, that just because you're the supervisor or you're the manager or you're the director or you're the owner doesn't mean you're the smartest person in the room. Um doesn't mean that you understand what's happening in the field in that moment and let your people you know give your people the opportunity to leave and show them you know show you what they have and, and i promise you it gets better
1: and give me one more better communication tool that we could use with our employees
2: when it comes to communication, uh, the a fundamental mistake that employers make is thinking that they can they can uh, communicate a message one time and then assume that it is received and understood. And that's almost never the case in any environment. Uh, I think when it comes to employee communication, it, it it's got to be a multi a multi prong affair. Meaning, you got to sit down and talk with them, uh, print it for them, put it on social media. I mean. Any different ways you can to communicate the message, you know, you got to repeat it several times to, to get the message through, but that's not enough. That's got to be followed with leadership demonstrating the behavior or the conduct or the procedures or whatever it is, demonstrating it themselves, leading, you know, by example. Um, the, the best form of communication from, from, you know, supervisor to subordinate is – being in the trenches with them, or doing the thing you want them to do. If you, you know, if you want your employees to wash the ambulance every day, you better be washing your supervisor's truck every day. If you want the employees to be sharp in their uniforms, you got to be sharp in your uniform. Um, when I took over as director of operations in Rural Metro, I, the first thing that I did was I noticed that the director before me came in in, you know, jeans or khakis and a polo shirt, and that's what he wore every day, but expected his employees to be in uniform. So the first thing that I did was go out, get myself a uniform, and if they're going to be in uniform with shiny shoes, so am I. Leadership by example is how is is, is a better form of communication than words, oftentimes.
1: What is the worst thing that a chief or a director can do?
2: High on the list would be knee-jerk reaction, and that's, you know, EMS at all levels, in all in all forms, is notorious for knee-jerk reactions to various situations. Rather than, than problem-solving, you know, leaders just tend to react. That's how, you know, rather than, than getting facts, they suspend. Rather than, than getting details or, or, or learning how to improve processes, they, they cut things all together. And I think that's, that's a, a key mistake that leaders make, and I think it's one of the worst things they can do for morale. I think the the next thing would be treating employees like they're stupid. This is uh, an industry that is inherently attractive to autonomous, you know, personality types. And to try to put those people in a box uh, is a mistake. And it'll lead to only bad things, in my humble opinion.
1: How did you get involved with EMS1?
2: They came to me. I had um, begun... uh, in doing lectures, doing uh, conferences, talking about documentation and things. And I was at a conference somewhere, I don't even remember where I was, someone had heard me speak and, and uh, Chris Call reached out to me and he uh, took my wife and me out to dinner one night and talked about this new thing that they were trying out called EMS-1. And I, 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 it, it didn't take me but a fraction of a second to say, of course I'll be involved with that. Uh, when they told me what their what their goal was, and it was entirely EMS-oriented and improving EMS-oriented, uh, it was absolutely something I wanted to be a part of from as early as I could.
1: Excellent. Chris was the guest on my podcast, and I enjoyed speaking with him as Great well. Great guy, right? He's a good guy, yeah. And also, Greg Fries, who's the uh, managing editor now, uh, he's uh, yep. been on my podcast twice. All right, so you knew way back when, when you were a child, that you wanted to be a paramedic and attorney, and you accomplished uh, both. But How does a paramedic go to become an attorney and then become a defense attorney?
2: Well, when I went to law school, I knew going in that I was going to be a defense attorney. I, I knew that was my path. Um, it, it was how I was oriented. I had no interest in civil law or family law or contract law or business law or any of those other stuffy you know, disciplines. Uh, but it was in law school, you know, studying each class, whatever it was, looking at the material, realizing, oh my goodness, this we used to do this stuff all the time. I didn't know it was illegal. I didn't know we couldn't do this. Someone's got to get out there and start talking to these folks and telling them what the what the truth is about the law and how it affects them. And. While I was in law school, I developed a couple of training programs. UCLA let me experiment on their students by doing a couple lectures, and that led, to, um, you know, that led to going out on tour on the speaking circuit and doing conferences and whatnot. And when I finally got out and got my ticket and started practicing, I realized that a lot of EMS providers find themselves in trouble, and there aren't that many people out there who know how to defend not just the trouble itself, but how the trouble impacts their life as an EMS provider. For example, in California, sure. just about anything you do, um, the state EMS authority is going to come down and, you know, they're, they're very aggressive with their discipline. So someone needed to come and protect these guys and gals and, and really try to, um, you know, step out and be an advocate for for EMS providers. And that's it, it sort of evolved. Naturally and organically, I didn't know that I intended to do it, uh, but now it's a it's a it's a very big and important part of my practice.
1: David, can you provide us with any examples of the state coming down on EMS providers? Where there's some case law that was created and, or you defended?
2: Sure. Yeah, I know, tons of them. So the number one issue that I face when dealing with this ADNS authority is uh, involves paramedics. Who off duty on their own time and in their own space get caught for a DUI? And uh, you know, in, in addition to defending them in the whole DUI process, the state comes in, uh comes in and and seeks to revoke their paramedic licenses every single time, citing that their off duty DUI conduct is substantially related to their role as a, as an EMS provider. And never once in all of the trials that I've done and all the hearings that I've I've never once have they ever actually argued or explained how their off-duty conduct in something like a DUI is substantially related to their role, but still they go after it anyway, and they want full revocation anyway. And uh, in, in, in all of the trials that I've ever done involving paramedics who, you know, got hit with a DUI, none of them had their licenses revoked outright. And, you know, but for me, I got, God only knows what would have happened to them if they, tried to, if they tried to handle it on their own. That's number one. But there's lots of other issues, you know, number mostly off-duty stuff. And it's the same thing. They, 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 they somehow conflate the off-duty conduct with their role as being a provider on-duty. Now, I have had uh, many, many cases where on-duty conduct, actually patient care-related conduct was that issue, and those are more difficult because, you know, there's there's a lot to consider. But, uh, you know, there's, it doesn't matter on-duty or off-duty, the state EMS authority, they're, they got their eyes on you. And I imagine it's the same in most every state.
1: What are some of the legal issues facing EMS as an industry?
2: I would need more context for that question because, the industry and legal issues are inseparable. Um, every time an, uh, a provider, you know, starts their shift, they are, they are working in the twilight zone of, of legal issues they face at every turn, no matter what they do. This is, I, I, you know, when, when I go on the road I, and I talk to every audience I tell, I say, listen, EMS is the only environment that I can think of where an, a, a provider, paramedic, EMT, doesn't matter. Where they come in at the beginning of a shift and before they've even had their first sip of coffee, they lay their certification card or their license down on the table, and they dare the world to take it away from them that day. Because this is the only environment where, that I can think of, where one good faith mistake, one miscalculation, one wrong turn could literally cost them everything. And so, you know, legal legal issues in in the EMS field are, are, are inseparable. But if, maybe if you've got a more specific area, I'd be happy to talk about that.
1: Sure. I'll give you two. Duty to act and malpractice.
2: All right. So let's, let's, let's start with malpractice. Malpractice is, in my opinion, um, something that providers have been made to be afraid of over the years, sort of a scare tactic to get them to do what's right. Malpractice is very, very, very rare. Um, and I, I've seen it in, in all the cases that I've done with paramedics and EMTs. I've only seen it uh, a couple of times, and and when I have seen it, it was late. I mean, it was obvious. There's no, it, it's it's uh, it's like the Supreme Court, you know, years ago described pornography. They said, I can't describe it, but I know it when I see it. Um, it's the same thing with malpractice. It's it, 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 you know it when you see it, but it's very very rare. As far, what was the first one?
1: <laughs> Duty to act. Oh, duty to act. Well, a duty to act is another,
2: I'm not going to say misunderstood notion, but it's often, I think, mischaracterized. And to me, the, the duty to act for an EMS provider boils down to one very, very simple notion, one very simple concept, and that is that when a provider is on duty and subject to call, they have an absolute duty to respond to the needs of everyone who calls them. And whatever those needs are, they're the ones who determine it. You know, the providers are the ones who determine that need. So the, the duty to act is is a good, all-encompassing way to look at the job. Uh, but uh, it, it's I think very it's too vague and ambiguous to, to really nail down, I think, because there's too many moving parts.
1: What tips can you provide to an EMS provider or an EMS industry to stay out of legal trouble?
2: Documents. Document, document, documentation is the single biggest um, issue that I that I come across when I deal with EMS related situations. You know, on the on the job, most people consider. Well, I'm not gonna say most. A lot of providers have been taught or learned that documentation is a chore. It's just something that they are supposed to do because they ran a call. And I, for one, am trying to reshape the view of documentation um, to get people to understand that documentation is every bit as important to patient care as anything else you might do with a needle or a splint or, a, you know, oxygen or anything else, that documentation is itself um, patient care. And that, that I think, is the, is probably the, the biggest thing, because within documentation, You've got um, your full, thorough, systematic assessment. You've got your your appropriate medical care based on the objective findings of your objective assessment. All of the things that one does culminate in the documentation, and when it's all said and done, your documentation is the only thing that remains. It's the only thing that's left over after the call. The patient's gone home or died. Uh, You've long since forgotten about the call because you've run 500 more since. Um, and when it comes time to remember what happened, when it comes time to to um, discuss it, the documentation is going to be the only thing left to remind you of, of that call you've long since forgotten about. So I think that, that that would be my number one.
1: How do your personal ethics cross over into your legal ethics?
2: Yeah, ethics ethics are ethics. Um, integrity is integrity. you know it's it's who we are when we think no one's looking. Um, for me, the job of defense lawyer is basically the same as the job of, of paramedics. And that is, you know, people call me, they, they need me right now, they believe that they're in a situation they can't get out of, they're you know, that it's, that it's life-threatening, even if it's not. Um, I've got to get in, I've got to work fast, i got to think on my feet, I get in, I get out, and it's over, and ideally I never see them again. So the same ethics of treating people right, of doing the best you can, of of following through, of running out of every ground ball, the same stuff you need to do in the field is what, is what I have to do as a, uh, as a lawyer.
1: Tell us about the LegalGuardian.com. So the legal
2: LegalGuardian, I, I, about 2005 or so, five or six, I was in law school. And I was, you know, had started writing programs and, you know, decided that there was definitely a need to get out there and communicate with, with uh, providers. And, and that was, you know, right at the at the apex of people coming to realize that if you didn't have a website, you didn't have anything. Um, so I decided that it would be a good idea to put a website just to have a, a place for there to be information providers can, can go to to get what they need. And... Um, it evolved from that. It evolved from a from a simple little GoDaddy do-it-yourself website to, you know, one that's now pretty substantial. Um, although it's difficult to update, so I don't update it very often. I probably should.
1: If anybody wants to reach out and talk to you or get in touch with you, how can they do that?
2: Oh, it's easy. Listen, I welcome all comers all the time. In fact, my cell phone number. It's 310-699-0070, and I welcome providers all across the country that if they've got questions or concerns or ideas or, you know, just want to have someone be a sounding board, I welcome welcome the call. Um, Keeping in mind, I, I can't practice law outside of the state of California, so anybody from outside of California who calls me with a hypothetical that they want education, you know, on, I'd be happy to help them with that. And if they're in California, I'll give them all the legal advice they want and i won't charge the talk i I never charge anybody just to answer their questions and try to make them feel better
1: david it's been my pleasure to have you on my podcast thanks for joining me
2: the pleasure's mine i really appreciate it and uh you know you're still out there stay safe would you